Welcome to Macro Crunch, a podcast covering global investing and technology. I'm your host, Sean Bill, a macro investor with over 20 years experience. I currently manage over $3 billion investing in growth, income, and alternative assets. I'm also an active angel investor based here in the Silicon Valley. If you're an accredited investor, you can follow my angel investments at angel.co. And check out my blog at macrocrunch.com. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. Hey, today we have uh, Lex Sokolin, a futurist and entrepreneur working on the next generation of financial services. He is a global fintech co-head at Consensus, a blockchain technology company building the infrastructure that enables a decentralized world. Lex focuses on emerging digital assets, public and private blockchain solutions, and decentralized finance and autonomous organizations. Lex, thanks a lot for coming on this morning. Really looking forward to hearing about your views on what's going on in the world of finance and the disruptions that are occurring. Um, I thought maybe we could start out a little bit with your background as an entrepreneur, because I think that gives you a unique perspective on you know, operating and building a business and kind of knowing and understanding some of the challenges that other entrepreneurs will face when they try to enter this space. Uh, so maybe we could start out with kind of your experience with Nest Egg uh, and Advisor uh, Engine and just talk about a little bit about what you did there, what uh, problems you were trying to solve and kind of what you learned along the way. Sure, thank you so much for, for having me on. Uh, I started my career in a fairly traditional uh, environment. Uh, I joined Lehman Brothers in 2006 in the strategy group for, uh, for their investment management division, which was you know a, a billion revenue type uh, private wealth and asset management business. And um, feel very fortunate to have had that education early on in that um, the, the crisis really illuminated lots of behavioral attributes of, of people under pressure and, and how they make decisions and sort of like the social web of, of what goes on. Um, but I, through, through that experience, I, I got an appreciation for the wealth management business and then the, the manufacturing side of it as well. Um, and kind of the, the nuts and bolts of delivering asset allocation to people. And of course, around 2009, 2010, most of that was delivered through financial advisors and in large part through private banks and, uh, and wirehouses and, and other kind of traditional financial firms. Um, we hadn't yet had the term fintech or the term robo-advisor, but we did have mint.com and other personal financial management tools that were starting to bring Silicon Valley thinking to how people managed um, their wallets. You know, And most of that was focused on seeing what you have and data aggregating it and providing a net worth statement and things of that nature. And a lot of it was also focused on retail um, at the, at the retail level for people really budgeting, it still sticks with me a memory of some content marketing that min.com did, which was um, where, where the topic was, should you buy cat food or should you make your own? You know, And that kind of gives you the sense of uh, consumer fintech at the time. My idea and, and the idea that is, is now embedded into really every firm uh, and was brought to bear by a lot of other companies was that really most of the financial advisor workflow can be put into software and on the internet uh, and then eventually into your phone. 
you know, I think today in 2021, it's it's really trivial to talk about, well, yeah, your storefront for financial products is your phone, because that is the sort of uh, obvious and impossible to fight trend, regardless of what we say about what happens in the margin about, you know, service and value add and planning and tax structuring. You know, the, the, the core answer is that Google has 20 million people for whom it will manage money um, using Goldman Sachs capital, and, and that's that. But anyway, um, Nestegg started out as a B2C uh, direct-to-consumer robo-advisor with a fairly straightforward um, risk questionnaire, asset allocation, sort of portfolio uh, rebalancing toolkit, uh, very much focused on one account. You know, so if, if you're a person, you have one account and what should be in that account. And if you think about early betterment or early Wealthfront, we, we were around that time a little bit earlier than Wealthfront. But... That was that was the uh, the direction. Mm-hmm. Um, I was still I was at Columbia doing a, a JD MBA at the time, and was kind of thinking about different ways of bringing that company to bear. Um, and we ended up going in the direction of partnering with financial firms rather than going after and building out a direct brand. And you know, and in at the time, a VC check into fintech would be like like 250k yeah. today it's 250 million um and so we we ended up around 2013 2014 making a hard pivot into b2b uh, wealth tech uh f- similar to the investnet the broad ridges of the world uh, which is now a company called advisor engine uh funded 50 million by wisdom tree and acquired by franklin templeton last year okay. and so uh, through through that journey, you know what what came out at me is really the challenges of digitizing the onboarding experience and the any digital transformation of a, of an existing business because we you know we we delivered a platform that was really an advisor desktop from account opening to asset allocation to your risk questionnaires to every investment philosophy you could think of to custodian integration, trading rebalancing, financial planning, and so on. So a, a very heavy lift. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, th- I think I've taken away from that a point of view around the, the advisor client interaction. And I've also taken a point of view about the asset allocation that, you know, might've, might've changed quite a bit actually over the last decade. Mm-hmm. Kind of moving away from a, a pure 60, 40 and kind of, broadening out the diversification in terms of the asset allocation or or do you actually think that maybe 6040 is the right way to go and yeah so i um it's it's been a real little bit of a round robin honestly and it maybe for many others as well but um coming out of lehman when thankfully i was an analyst and didn't it didn't really matter to me financially but i saw people really ruin their their earnings uh uh, that they ruin really decades of their work based on the financial decisions they made in the moment. Um, I, I went strongly and philosophically towards modern portfolio theory uh, w- with the point being, you know, there's, there's a right mathematical answer. Uh, maybe there are different mathematical answers that get you to the, to the same, uh, you can have different components that get you to the same mathematical outcome. And so you can kind of tilt it, but there is a right mathematical answer. There is uh, the efficient frontier, there's the 60-40, there's the gold in the commodities and the sprinkle some magic dust on it. And that was that was my view coming out of Lehman and seeing people lose a lot of money from active management. 
And I think the rise of ETF, ETFs kind of cranked that up even more where the robots that made the ETFs became so hyper-efficient and large that, um, that, that it seemed inevitable. But when you, when, you, when you have a platform that ingests the asset allocations of hundreds, if not thousands of different RIAs, and you ingest their uh, investment frameworks and their risk questionnaires to map the risk calculation to the model. Mm -hmm. Like one thing, it, it, uh, there's not a ton of meaning in the distinctions that these practices make that they think are important. There's no difference between the DFA funds or the Vanguard funds or the SPY fund, you know, the, the, the iShares version of it. And if somebody is at 55% or 58%, uh, and if they have these magic 18 questions or 12 questions, I mean, it all is sort of nonsense end of the day. Um, it, it is, it is polished on something that doesn't matter. Um, so if you have a good core allocation, um, I think that forms a, a strong chassis, but then I think as you as you've let this theme go, as the industry has let the um, the index become the market, uh, we've had some really strange outcomes where, you know, being in the index is more important than being a good company, uh, or that you you know you have these rebalancing robots, high frequency rebalancing robots that live around the index and generate alpha out of totally strange uh, strange things. And then, of course, the broader macro issues around uh, the, you know, the money supply, uh, the negative interest rates, and uh, th the lack of choice about buying anything other than the index, and the yeah. destruction of the active management industry in terms of, you know, intellectual capital to actually create pricing decisions, and therefore, you know, you start to have to think about. Is there such a thing as alpha? Like, do, do you, is it, does it matter to look for alpha? Um, and if you do, where, where are risks that you can take that are actual risks rather than sort of manufactured illusions about returns? Um, and so I'm, I'm now working in the blockchain crypto world, uh, which is, let's just say it's core satellite, right? So it's the satellite portfolio and in the past, I would have said 5% or 10% in the satellite portfolio. And I think these days it's probably 50% for me in terms of how I think about it. Yeah, it's been really interesting. I mean, you know, hearing your thoughts on zero interest rate policies and quantitative easing and what that has done for the ability of managers to create alpha. And that's put, you know, asset owners like myself in a very difficult position because we're, we have to go try to meet returns to, you know, make our returns to meet liabilities. And uh, of course, fixed income at current rates is pretty much, you know, a drag on any portfolio. And it's forced us out the risk curve. And it's forced us into, you know, where we may have used to used to have a very small exposure to high yield or private credit, uh, you know, or, you know, we've had to slowly grow those buckets to try to basically make up for yields that we've lost. Uh, as a result of quantitative easing and the distortions that that's brought into the markets. Um, and I think we're seeing that globally all over the world. All the CIOs we talk to, you know, are all being forced out the risk curve, all having to reduce fixed income, all having to get more into venture, more into private equity, more into equity, public equities. And you did see we're actually right now in the process of moving half a billion dollars out of active managers into indexes because the alpha has really, like we were saying, 
not there. And so we've had to adapt, you know, to that. And it's taken us probably a little longer than some other funds, you know, that can move quicker. I'm sure your RAs, you know, probably have some that move very quick. Um, but, you know, uh, we're finally kind of reaching that same conclusion that, you know, the alpha is not where, where it was in the past. It's not uh, easily accessible as it was in the past. And so we've had to adjust our portfolios accordingly. So, so talking about blockchain and crypto, I think you have a very interesting framework for that. I've, I've heard you talk a little bit about that. Um, maybe for our uh, pension CIOs that are listening to this, maybe you could quickly just kind of cover your big picture framework for how you think about crypto and blockchain and, and what that enables uh, for the future of investment management. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I um, try to be super reductive and somewhat rhetorical in my language because I, th I think people get really stuck both in the technical jargon of finance and then the inevitable feeling of importance that comes with controlling capital. Um, uh, and you know, that, that puts you into behavioral traps, which are then bad for performance. Cause you're, you're like, oh, well, these people are fancy. They must be smart. Uh, or like these people are fancy, but they were smart 10 years ago. And now they're completely irrelevant because all the teenagers are better money managers than them, you know, and, and that is like quantitatively provable today in, in some cases. Um, and so, you know, the, the simple model is that there's always been financial technology, but that's not fintech. Uh, fintech really with that kind of mint.com moment is the last 15 years of private early stage venture style investment into technology for financial services that is largely about distribution. You know, so if you're, if you're thinking about the financial services industry, it's no different than any other industry. There, there is a manufacturing plant, there's a factory and that factory makes stuff. So, you know, in our case here, the selection of, um, the portfolio selection is part of that factory. Um, although really underneath, uh, underneath the asset allocation is the, the actual manufacturing of the, the fund and the fund products and the security selection. And then goes on to exchange infrastructure and capital markets infrastructure. But the, you know, so the capital that's being put at risk in the factory of making the investment product is at the bottom. And then somewhere on the other side is a store and that store sells financial product stuff. Um, and that could be your bank branch or it can be your broker dealer or it can be um, an RAA, you know, or it can be uh, in the case of, you know, some employer signing up for uh, a 401k provider and, or, a, you know, a state signing up for, um, somebody to manage, uh, to, to manage their, their pension fund. You know, there's always a store where the thing is sold. Um, right. and then in between there's a, there's a long value chain of things that seem important, but are really just intermediating software, like account opening and trading and rebalancing and KYC AML and risk management and so on. And so FinTech has been about taking the store and putting it into a phone or a website. Nothing more really, there's some stuff about efficiency in the middle office, but largely it's been, instead of your financial advisor, you now have got Betterment or Robinhood, the end. Or right. instead of your bank, you got Chime, yeah. Built on existing rails is kind of yes. like something we've seen to date, mostly. Yeah, it's, it's largely the same factory as before. Um, yeah. This is why when the DTCC, uh, uh, 
you know, has a capital call for Robinhood, Robinhood is broken because it's on the same old stuff. And this is like having a Spotify of CD-ROMs. You know, it's, um, yeah, it's super cool. You got a website for those CD-ROMs, but it's irrelevant. It's not interesting. It doesn't do anything. It has kind of surprised me. I mean, I've been investing in fintech companies since 2014, and it every, all of them have been built on the back of existing rails, which always yeah. I said, okay, well, you can only take your cost down so much because you're always going to have to pay that service provider that you're riding on top of, you know. And I, I see definitely. I think that's a really interesting point for for listeners is fintech for the last five or ten years. That's what it's been built on. It's been built on existing. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's, I'm being unfair, I'm being rhetorical, and I'm very much focused on the frontier, right? So there's a difference between, for example, dressing up City or, or Wells Fargo and having a digital experience uh, on top of Wells Fargo. Uh, it, it is a, and not to pick on Wells Fargo, pick any bank, um, it is a legitimate improvement in both customer UX and the design and often even the cost of operation to say, forget Wells Fargo, here's Chime, or, you know, here's Current or Varro or whatever. Those things legitimately are more efficiently built, but they still use the they still use core banking. There's still depository accounts. The depository account still has nothing to do with a VC investment or a payment rail or um, you know being a market maker on 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 an exchange. They're just different industries entirely. And so um, there is a natural limitation to this, and uh, this is why fintech now is sort of in customer customer acquisition attrition warfare with the banks and with the, the large technology companies about who can market best and acquire acquire the incremental deposit or investment account or whatever. Um, so th- digitizing distribution is uh, incremental improvement, but it is not a kind of total disruptive moment that bottoms out an industry. Uh, in the case of the internet, um, and information when you, you have a legitimate difference between a book and a blog, right? There, there is a legitimate, it's the same content, it's, it's media content or information, but there's a legitimate difference in the form factor which makes a digitally manufactured version just a, um, a, a step function better than anything uh, before it. And so, um, the distribution of digitally native information content uh, led to the whatever trillion dollar market caps of Google, right? Google is the internet. It's captured the value of the internet through the search engine. Um, similarly for, uh, for, for Netflix versus Blockbuster, and these are cliches because they, you know, they're powerful cliches. Um, DVD versus kind of streaming, right? It's, it's, the digitally native uh, video file versus uh, something you 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 sell and physically buy, you need the digitally manufactured good before the digital distribution stuff makes sense. And right. so, you know, my observation, kind of in my career, was the the six or seven years I spent b- building wealth tech platforms uh, that were adopted and, and used by advisors and and people. Um, end of the day, were not that disruptive change. They were just polish on top of what it, what there what there is. Um, however, we do now have a a software based um, economic uh, sort of property rights and settlement system, uh, which which is the advent of programmable blockchains. And so, 
Bitcoin, yes, uh, I appreciate Bitcoin. I think it's great. Uh, Bitcoin is based on a blockchain, so it, it has uh, digital scarcity and it does create exchange. But in particular, programmable blockchains like Ethereum that allow us to create software that is then uh, cross asset class became to, really compelling to me. So the, the 2017 is, is when I started uh, becoming obsessed with a sector and joined my current company consensus around 2019, really, really committing everything into the theme because I saw that um, various software projects on Ethereum could manufacture, right? Talking about the factory now, could manufacture payment processors. They could manufacture faux bank accounts. They could manufacture uh, lending and borrowing, collateralized lending and borrowing, as well as um, they could generate interest rates, which could then be pooled into investment vehicles that would maximize interest rates and kind of look like PIMCO, but on chain. Um, they could they could manufacture pie charts and asset allocations of various tokens and have different performance returns. You know, manager selection programs that at Lehman took us years to stand up could be built in in copy paste of code and de deployment on, on a blockchain. And, and now insurance and derivatives um, have also come. So you know you're you're looking at things like TradeWeb, but but on on chain. And all of this is in the same standard. It is, it is in the same software standard. It is all open source. It is all functional. It now has $50 billion worth of uh, USD cash equivalents and about $45 billion of uh, capital at work inside of the different asset classes. Mm -hmm. And to me, this felt like the, you know, the moment that, um, that was missing from actual change, uh, step change in the financial industry. And so I think 2020 is, is when this concept came to the popular imagination as decentralized finance, you know, mm -hmm. and whether or not the market is up or down and the prices are high or low, um, it is a, a permanent change in what we're capable of in terms of financial industry uh, capabilities. Like, how would you describe the difference between like um, someone that's using like JP Morgan as their bank and someone that uses a new DeFi bank? So basically the blockchain sits in the, the center of where the money is held and then the consumer would just interact directly on the blockchain would there really wouldn't be an entity like a, a bank per se yeah so this space is so full of like um dumb this down a little bit for the institutional crowd that's really still I, old world here so like maybe just like kind of yeah i think like how they conceptualize and frame this framework of like okay you know you don't need jp morgan you can use an Ethereum-based, you know, uh, blockchain for the smart contracts to kind of replace it. Is that right? Yeah. So, you know, from a philosophy perspective, in the same way that like the hundred different asset allocations all sort of start start to blend together, and and in the same way, you know, I don't hold a strong opinion about. Um, I don't think banks are bad. I don't, you know, I, I, I'm grateful we have the Federal Reserve. I'm grateful we've got a whole bunch of credit. I'm grateful that there's been stimulus so people can eat. Like it's great. Um, I'm grateful that there's control and regulation of of um, uh, financial prudence and things of that nature. So, I'm personally not in a place where you know it's removing intermediation is fantastic for its own sake, but removing intermediation for the delivery of more financial uh, empowerment to people. And in particular, you know, the, the words financial health or thriving, like are, are words that um, 
that, that I feel aligned towards where you're really, you're letting people have good financial lives, whatever that is for that person. Um, I, I think that a, a new ecosystem opens this up in a way that is closed in the prior industry structure. So the mental models, um, it, it is a little bit of, um, it's crunchy. You have to do some work, right? So there, the first piece of work is around why does it matter and what does this rail do at all? What does a crypto rail do? Um, the word crypto stands for cryptography, which is the encryption of information. Whenever you open up a browser and it has that little lock in the corner, that 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 website's encrypted. So you know it's safe to use. In the similar way, crypto should mean safe to use. Uh, it, it should not mean uh, scary and scammy and fraudulent and so on. Um, that's that's human nature, right? The technology is the technology of encryption. And so the, the first kind of step is... Um, and, and the value of Bitcoin, especially as a, as a project, is the concept of digital scarcity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so for all of our uh, friends with an economics degree, right? Like you, you need scarcity in order to have economic exchange. So in the real world, if I have a bottle of water and um, I give it to you, I don't have it anymore in my hand. You know, because like we're we're. Uh, not necessarily in a simulation and you can give me some money for the bottle and there we go, right? We've got a market. Now you go to the internet world and this is broken. I give you a picture of a bottle and I still have the bottle. There's no economic exchange. It's impossible. There's no economic exchange on the internet for digital goods, full stop. The only exchange on the internet is about you and me hanging out, exchanging pictures, somebody else uh, selling that moment of attention to, to, to a third party is the only economic model for, um, for a place where there's no marginal cost. So that's broken. Um, what Bitcoin, what the Bitcoin project really put in place is a demonstration of a system where you have a digital good, you know, in this case, it's the Bitcoin uh, asset, but it could be anything really. Um, where in a digital environment, I transfer it to you and, you and I don't have it anymore, it's just gone. I don't have it, it's like that physical bottle and therefore you can pay me for it. So all of a sudden we're in the digital world, uh, which very obviously is the world we're going to have more of and not less of. And so we're in a digital world and we can have markets and economics. And like the, the human monkey brain all of a sudden works again, right? And, and that's generally good. And so, um, that's kind of breakthrough number one. Breakthrough number two outside of, you know, so when people talk about Bitcoin, the commodity, right? And it being like gold, it is this attribute. It is scarce. You can hold it and someone, no one can take it from you. The, the second breakthrough is really the structure of the, of the comp of like the network and the, the computer stuff. So you know, this, this grows out of peer-to-peer uh, -peer networks and Napster and file sharing and BitTorrent and, and things like that. You can, you can think about how computers work. Uh, it, you know, 60 years ago, it's in a giant warehouse and there's one of it and it crunches a, an instruction. And then you fast forward and you get desktop computers in every, in every home. And they do the computation in that computer on the desktop. And then you fast forward and you've got laptops and phones and the phones, they don't run your software. 
the software runs on a giant server farm in the cloud from Google and Amazon, you just have a little window into that software. So the computations moved away from your device to the cloud. And blockchains that are programmable like Ethereum are a new computing paradigm where the software is, is run simultaneously on thousands of nodes. And for this, you need powerful hardware, which is why it's taken long to get here. It's run in a distributed way, meaning there's lots of different nodes in different places simultaneously, and then it is synced. Uh, and the syncing process is expensive because you're trying to get to a truth in, a, in an environment where you trust nobody. So to validate stuff is expensive, thus the cost and the, the miners and so on. And, and it's magic to have this, the, uh, this happen to computation uh, for a computing network, because it means you can run software then in this decentralized way where you don't need to trust anybody um, and, and you can still get results that are verifiably true. So you combine that with the fact that you can have digital assets that are scarce, you can have markets and exchanges, um, and then you can have those assets, those digital assets live inside any software program you can think of. So basically that's it, it's the internet of value. Um, and you know, that's, the, that's the foundational discovery. And then immediately, you know, the first thing you do is you just, you recreate financial middleware, but now you're applying that middleware to assets that are real rather than pieces of paper floating around in the physical world. And so the blockchain uh, and not necessarily the Bitcoin blockchain, but any kind of public or private blockchain really kind of becomes the plumbing for finance and could essentially could eventually replace like a DTC or a, a notch up or ACHs or what have you um, with these new new capabilities. So it's kind of a it's kind of a I think you know you built the digital experience and now we're kind of moving into the blockchain as you were saying kind of becomes the um, kind of becomes the internet of value. Yeah, so it's it's replacing the DTCC, but it's also replacing all of their Excel files, and it's also replacing all their cloud connections on all their computers to Microsoft and Amazon, and then it's also automating and replacing all the people that work there, you know. And then also it is written in the same language as Amazon, you know, and uh, YouTube and the rest. So it's it's um, quite a kind of a paradigm shift. So in theory, I mean, this is where people are talking about where you should be able to have security settling, you know, within five, 10 minutes instead of waiting two days, T plus two settlement. Uh, in theory, with these different blockchains, it's almost instantaneous type of settlement once the transactions are confirmed by both sides. Yeah, it's so this this is there's a little bit of hair and complexity around this, but um the answer is yes. If you were to, ha you, you, if we pin to the side the word security um, in in the legal sense and just say, you know, you have exchange of digital assets, um, that is happening uh, daily on Ethereum with hundreds of different types of digital assets, and that you know they are settling block by block, which is the measure of time for a blockchain. The chain measures time in blocks. Um, and um, uh, there are issues around throughput and there are issues around um, sort of the, the, the fees and scalability and stuff, but all of, all of that is kind of technical upgrade uh, topics. Uh, 
where, but, but um, it is already happening and it has been happening for years that um, uh, people have been exchanging and trading assets, that those trades are uh, efficient uh, when compared to the infrastructure that powers traditional settlement processes. Yeah, much more efficient. Yeah, and I guess like most recently, we've seen a lot about nifties and that would kind of be kind of one example of being able to trade a digital asset online. We've seen some pretty crazy numbers with that. Um, yeah, so there's, you know, the point there, the NFT is a non-fungible token. They're, they're, so a token is just a wrapper. It's like a hyperlink, but for an asset. Um, and so you can have a fungible token. The dollar is a fungible token. Uh, because you don't care which dollar I give you. Bitcoin and Ether themselves are fungible. You don't care which you get. They're all equivalent. A non-fungible token is, is something that's unique. So um, it's, it's the, the Mona Lisa or you know, my, my right hand is, is not fungible and so on. Um, and people have been using this particular token standard, which is open source and determined by, by a technical community to, to um, digitize art and make it scarce so that kind of going back to our earlier conversation, you can, if you buy a piece of art that is anchored on chain, um, you have it and nobody else has. Mm -hmm. Now, there are adjacent issues of like, well, what if somebody screenshots it? Or what if somebody prints it again, right? That you can't control the outside world. Um, but at the same time, you have the same issues with, you know, reproduction, fake reproductions of paintings, or a poster of a painting is not worth the same thing as the painting and its history, and so on. So, um, the NFT market has made blockchain-based assets more and more understandable. You know, people got really excited, and to, to uh, people got excited to be negative about CryptoKitties in 2017. This is the same. Uh, it is. It is all. Uh, it is all a digitization of visual or musical objects and, and then economic activity around them. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's pretty exciting because now, you know, it's, it's Mark Cuban, it's Gary Vaynerchuk, it's uh, Elon Musk, who are, it's Jack Dorsey, who are tokenizing their tweets and so on. And what it reveals to me also is that going back to nothing about finance is special, like your most complex derivative or bond or structured note sold to you for 3 million bucks by Morgan Stanley is no different than a cartoon character that a 12 year old uploads to Ethereum. And I, and I mean that like deeply truthfully and legitimately, there's no difference. Um, it, it is like, you know, it's, it's um, uh, kind of the value of a in the 1600s, a beautifully written letter by a scribe or, you know, somebody's uh, uh, palm being imprinted on a letter and to say that, you know, one is valuable, one is not, um, and then comparing that to email. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, e email eats all of that and, and makes it irrelevant. And so the, the standards and the technologies that power um, NFTs are the same exact ones that power um, hyper-complex global real estate deals, for example, and their securitization and sale to retail investors. And do you think we'll see kind of an expansion of like, I mean, we started to kind of get a little bit of this tokenization in the ICO market. And there are, you know, ways to participate in real estate deals on Republic and other platforms. Um, do you think we'll see uh, a kind of a tokenization of 
these assets online where I can say, okay, I want to buy part of the Bank of America building in San Francisco and part of the, uh, you know, Chrysler building in New York and, you know, part of whatever in whatever city, John Hancock. I want to build my own commercial diversified real estate portfolio kind of to my own bespoke taste. And I'm going to do it with these coins or what have you. I mean, you think that's coming down the pike? For investors. Yeah, so I, I think, uh, so first off, this stuff goes in waves, right? So um, I think the answer to the question is yes, but part of it is when. Um, and I think it comes in waves in the sense that um, it gets it gets popular and then it rolls back and it gets more popular and it gets rolls back. You know, so for example, um, the in the beginning, there's Bitcoin and nobody wants to own Bitcoin. And then uh, people own Bitcoin and Ether, Ethereum comes out. So some people might use Bitcoin to buy Ethereum uh, and might want to hold that. Uh, and then we, you know, the early NFTs, the cartoon cats and everything come out and nobody wants to hold that because it's, you know, no self-respecting artist or Sotheby's or Christie's wants to deal with cartoon cats, even if they're selling for a hundred grand. Um, by the way, there's a project called Hashpunks from uh, uh, CryptoPunks from um, 2017, which is now floating at like one and a half million per um, uh, for per little 16 pixel by pixel icon because of the historic nature of that project, right? And in 2017, nobody wants to figure out how to own that because it's whatever. It's a 16 by 16 uh, pixel icon, and so then we've got the token offerings for early stage um, ICOs. And no, yeah, some people want to own that, but nobody really wants to own that. So now let's get into security tokens. And then you start to see the quality of the things that are getting put into these buckets, right? So we're starting from pixelated icons um, in, on the art stuff, moving to uh, much more beautiful and interesting thing. And, and there's a lot of crypto art now that is, uh, it's very pop culture and it's beautiful, beautifully rendered, and it's selling for 70 million bucks at Christie's, but it's still not, um, you know, it's still not the traditional art world. In two years from now, the a large portion of the traditional art world uh, is is going to be on chain. You know, it's everybody from Lindsay Lohan to Snoop Dogg to again to to Jack uh, to Jack Dorsey to. Um, uh, Kings of Leon, right, are, are tokenizing their music. So you see that transition. It's taken some time for for the art side to, to move forward. And then if you look on the security side, you've gone from very sort of high-risk assets that uh, have incredible technology risk, like, you know, early Ethereum and then early decentralized finance protocols like Aave and Compound and so on for you to find them in 2017, uh, is really needle in a haystack to figure that out, one out of 2,000. Um, but increasingly, like the, the stuff that people put into the STO market largely has been nonsense. It's it's assets that nobody would want to own in the traditional world either. So just because you've tokenized a lemon doesn't mean people want to to, to, to own a lemon. So in the, in the same way of like, the core question is, well, does somebody really want to own some of the Chrysler building? Like why? You know, does somebody really want the Bank of America Tower? Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But what I think is very clear is that the quality of the assets that are going into the containers mm -hmm. is going is going up very rapidly. And we've had this sprint in the media world of the quality going up 
I mean, literally to in, in this, we're talking now in March, but uh, of 2021, it, it is literally the top of the media industry right now that is trying to access tokenization. So, you know, the, the, ultra, the comparison would be, you know, when is KKR giving, uh, giving prime access to their very best ultra high net worth products, uh, in a tokenized manner in a DeFi protocol. That's the equivalent of what's happening in the art world. And I think, will it happen in the finance world? Well, why wouldn't it? You know, what, what for what reason would it not work? And and yeah. so I'm pretty yeah. bullish. You get a slice of interest income or rental income from different assets and participate in appreciation and kind of really a whole new level of customization, you know, fit your uh, liability stream, you know, and kind of interesting. Um, I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, I guess maybe one or two more questions, if you don't mind. Um, so do you, I was reading one of your recent blog posts about kind of China and how they're kind of out front and some of these issues and some of these areas. And one thing that I thought was really interesting was the super app and kind of the rise of the super app in China. And we don't really have that equivalent here in the US. Um, do you kind of do you think there will be kind of like a what Google was with the internet? Will there be? I guess it may not be possible because it is so spread out in De DeFi, right? But do you think there'll be like a, an Amazon of a fintech or a Google of fintech and have some kind of super app in the U.S. And why do you think we haven't seen it? Um, yeah, this is a this is a multifaceted question. Um, the U.S. Uh, it's, it's um, I, I want to be careful in my phrasing because I think the regulators are uh, in a I think that they're trying to optimize for things that are objectives that they um, that that they uh, are receive that you know they're not the ones that are forming the objectives and then uh, sometimes the objectives are at cross purposes between themselves. And we have the alphabet soup of regulators. And unlike Europe, which is, for example, principles-based, uh, the US is rules-based. So we're going to make a list of the 10 things you shouldn't do, uh, mm -hmm. rather than we're going to tell you what outcome we want. And so it's it's very sort of kindergarten type um, approach to, to what companies should and shouldn't do. And so I, I really empathize with the challenges that regulators have because they're trying to protect consumers and protect markets, but they're in many ways, their hands are tied behind their back. Mm -hmm. That said, um, the structure of American regulation um, does not uh, allow for a super app to exist. It, it is impossible. Um, and that is because a super app combines financial products and kind of media and commerce products in one. You know, so the the hat trick that uh, Alibaba did and for which it's now being sort of publicly uh, not punished, but is, is flailing around is that it, it did, it put the entire small business commerce uh, economy of China, which is the engine, uh, you know, it's an order of magnitude more important in China than in the US, the small business sector. Um, and it wired it all up with a bespoke payment rail uh, for and financial. Um, and then, you know, made, made financial revenues off of that. So everything that you can do with the deposit, you, what you can do with trading and lending and, and so on. 
um, and it wired up millions of merchants into um, a place where people buy things. And so the user interacts with the application because they want toilet paper or they want whatever. Uh, but then, so that's like Amazon kind of, except it's much larger, uh, an order of Mac, like 10, 15 times larger. Um, and then they pay for things using the payment processor and the rails of Ant Financial. You know, mm -hmm. And then that also connects into every user's essentially financial position, their bank account, their investment account, and so on. And so th that happened because there, there was no, you know, there was no card network to compete with. It was open field. You know, they built it from scratch and they, in the US, first off, you, you, you can't combine media and finance without poisoning your media business. You know, the reason Google doesn't want to, or Apple don't want to go into finance because uh, it, it would, it could negatively impact the rest of their business. And by the way, finance is tiny. Like Deutsche Bank is worth 20 billion bucks and Apple is worth 2 trillion and it's got 250 billion in the bank that it's very purposefully not using to buy Deutsche Bank. Right. You know, um, so in, in the US, technology has sort of uh, flowed around the banks to, uh, to, to declaw the banks. You know, so your, your bank is really your iPhone. Your money is really in your iPhone and your bank provider is just a button inside of your iPhone. There's no power in your bank. It's just a feature of your technology. And, and that's how it's flowed around in a way that, um, that has allowed technology to capture it. I think that blockchain-based systems are really one of the best hopes we have. Like some people may enjoy the walled garden, um, you know, I think it's it's been a really nice consumer experience to be with inside of the Silicon Valley Gardens. And so, you know, I think in the early 2000s, people thought like everything is free. It's this fantastic commons where we can exchange ideas and share information, all this stuff. And after a while, you realize you're actually you're in the town square of a feudal manor. Yeah. Like the Lord Zuckerberg uh, governs you and you're just exchanging memes in the town square like an insane person. Um, yeah, ex exactly. Um, I think blockchain's the the main counterbalance to that, mm -hmm. uh, and in particular, public uh, open blockchain, where the technology itself is actually hyper capitalist, in the sense that pr property rights and ownership are uh, woven into the fabric of the network. They're they're unbreakable. There, you know, there's. It's, uh, it, it takes um, uh, an unimaginable effort to really, to, to, um, uh, to break Bitcoin or Ethereum at this point. And then, you know, if, if you enjoy this sort of capitalist structure, then you can go and compete and be an entrepreneur and you can sell your art, your, your securities or whatever you like. Um, and I think that approach is in many ways orthogonal to our current regulatory systems. And so it's a, I think it's a real challenge, you know, to see how it plays out. Yeah, that's great. I mean, very, very interesting conversation. And best place for people to follow you would probably be maybe on LinkedIn for the FinTech Blueprint or maybe on Twitter. Uh, I'm, I try to make myself easy to find. Uh, on Twitter, it is Lex Sokolin. Uh, and um, same, same on LinkedIn, Lex Sokolin. And then for more, for deeper blockchain, uh, um, dives take take a look at consensus.net uh, as well as 
uh, metamask.io, which is the, the crypto wallet, just right click, install extension in Chrome and off you go. Um, and then if you're interested in my writing and research, check out uh, fintechblueprint.com where uh, I do a free weekly newsletter. I really like that letter, highly recommend it. I mean, it's been super interesting for me just to kind of learn a little more about the space. And, you know, I think you break things down into the layman's language really well in these letters. So I think that's a great place to start for uh, the listeners of the pod. All right, well, Lex, thank you so much for taking time to visit with us today and uh, really look forward to keeping up with your work and seeing what else the future holds here. Awesome, thanks for having me. Thank you.